In the 19th chapter of Acts, the Apostle Paul finally gets to Asia. This is the ancient Roman province of Asia. He's been trying to get here for a while. In chapter 16, he wanted to go, and the Holy Spirit said, nope, not yet. He was there a little bit last week. He spent some time in Ephesus, and he had to leave, and he said, if the Lord wills, I'll return. And it was the Lord's will for him to return. So in chapter 19, we see three fruitful years of ministry through Paul in the city of Ephesus. And if you have ever been tempted to think that the Bible is boring, then you have not read Acts chapter 19. So Luke said this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples and he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No. We have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, Into what then were you baptized? They said, Into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance. Telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him. That is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. And he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, (laughs) saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leapt on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them, so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also, many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. May it do so today. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we come asking 
for you to fill us with your spirit. Please fill me with your spirit to proclaim the gospel with all boldness. Fill every one of us with your spirit that we may have power to serve you and to minister your gospel. I pray that exactly what happened in this passage would happen today, that the fear of you would fall upon every one of us, that the name of the Lord Jesus would be extolled and honored and highly esteemed. I pray that the word of the Lord would prevail and it would increase mightily. We ask this through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. Amen. In the year 1904, revival broke out in Wales. Now, if you're like me and you grew up in the South, when you hear the word revival, you might have in mind that one week each year where there's guest preachers and there's special music every night of the week. Now, though the Lord has used those, good has been done through those meetings, really they shouldn't be called revival meetings because what is meant by the word revival, both biblically and historically, is, is quite different. For instance, the Welsh revival of the early 20th, the early 20th century was, was not planned. There was no scheduling. There was no advertisement. In that time period, God came down in a uniquely powerful way. In the first two months of that revival, over 70,000 people were converted to Christ. Over the two to three years that this revival lasted in Wales, over 100,000 people were converted. Eyewitnesses described the Welsh revival in this way. One person said, if one were asked to describe in a word the outstanding feature of those days, one would unhesitatingly reply that it was a universal, inescapable sense of the presence of God. The Lord had come down. A sense of the Lord's presence was everywhere. It pervaded, nay, it created the spiritual atmosphere. Another said, eternal issues were discussed freely and unashamedly, and above all, a sense of the presence and holiness of God pervaded every area of human experience. At home, at work, in shops, and in public houses, eternity seemed inescapably near and real. There were meetings every night of the week that would last three to four hours with singing and praying and preaching. The singing of the Welsh revival was well known. Actually, the song that we sing, Here is Love, came out of that revival. But those meetings happened spontaneously through a people who was hungry and thirsty for the living God. Because of the revival, the, the nation of Wales changed. The police had almost nothing to do. The courts were virtually empty. Saloons went out of business. Public drunkenness was rare. Profanity was no longer heard. Old debts were paid off that were long forgotten. Relationships and marriages and families were healed and restored. It was a mighty work of the sovereign God. J.I. Packer once wrote about 
10 elements that typically happen during seasons of revival and awakening. And one way that he described revival is God doing what he normally does, but amplified. But these are 10 elements of revival from J.I. Packer. I'll simply read these for now, but I want you to look for these as we go through our passage, and I'll refer back to this a few times. When revival comes, God comes down. God's word pierces. Man's sin is seen. Christ's cross is valued. Change goes deep. Love breaks out. Joy fills hearts. Each church becomes itself, which means it doesn't act as a social club. It acts as the people of God. The lost are found. And Satan keeps pace. That is what true revival, that is what spiritual awakening looks like. And it didn't just happen in Wales. We could easily talk about the first great awakening in the 1730s and 40s under George Whitfield and Jonathan Edwards or the Sandwich Island revivals, which we would, we would call the Hawaiian revival of 1836 or the prayer meeting revival in New York City in 1858 or the East African revival of the 1930s or the Ephesian revival of around 55 AD. And that's what we see in our passage this morning. In Acts 19, God makes himself known in the city of Ephesus in unique and palpable manifestations of his power. In Acts chapter 19, we see revival coming to Ephesus. And I think we can summarize God's work in this chapter in this way, that in times of revival, God demonstrates the power of the Spirit and he vindicates the glory of Christ. So we see the demonstration of the Spirit's power in the first 12 verses. We see the vindication of Christ's glory in the latter half, in verses 13 through 20. So first, we see the demonstration of the Spirit's power. <laughs> now, the first seven verses of this chapter, it's an interesting scene. Paul comes to Ephesus and he finds around 12 disciples. I don't think there's anything special in that number. Luke doesn't say much about it. But through spending some time with them, he realizes, Paul realizes, that these disciples are, are, are missing something. They have some gaps in their understanding, in their experience. <laughs> Remember last week, we saw Apollos who was in Ephesus. No doubt these disciples were, were linked with him. And Apollos was teaching accurately about Jesus, but not fully, not completely. He had some gaps. Well, he knew about the baptism of John and Priscilla and Aquila, they showed him more accurately the, the story of the gospel. And then Apollos leaves Ephesus and goes to Corinth. And while he's doing that, Paul does the exact opposite. Paul leaves Corinth and he goes to Ephesus. And that's when he finds these disciples who shared the same gaps in understanding that Apollos did. So he asked them a question. He says, did you receive the Holy Spirit 
when you believed. Notice that he did not say, did you believe? Like, have you put your faith in Christ? No, he knows these are believers, just like Apollos was. These are disciples. So he asks, did you receive the Spirit when you believed? And they say, we haven't even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And so Paul baptizes them. He realizes they haven't received Christian baptism. They only know the the baptism of repentance from John the Baptist. And so, in a sense, Paul fulfills the ministry of John the Baptist by pointing them to the Messiah, to the Lamb of God, to the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is about 20 to 25 years after the ministry of John the Baptist. So they have been in the dark on this for a long time. But remember, this was before the internet. This was before smartphones. Ephesus and Jerusalem were not close geographically. And news traveled slow. So Paul brought them up to speed. So upon hearing these things, upon hearing the the kind of fullness of gospel truth, these disciples were baptized. Paul laid his hands on them, probably praying for them. And the Holy Spirit came upon them, which led to them prophesying and speaking in tongues. And at this point, you probably have questions. What's going on here? Is this normative? Should, should we be seeing this? Maybe I, I've never experienced something like this. Is that a problem? What, what do we do with this passage? Well, there are some that have said that the work of the Holy Spirit, as seen in passages like this, are limited to the New Testament era, to the, the apostolic age, the first century. And since the apostles are long dead and their words have been recorded for all time in Scripture, that we have no more need for the Spirit to work in this way. Thus, the, this kind of supernatural work of the Spirit has ceased. Not all working of the Spirit, but this kind of thing. Now, I think that we can all agree that the role and the ministry of the apostles was unique. Of course. But I don't see anything in the New Testament that would indicate the cessation of the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit. Now, there are others that say that this passage and and others like it show the need for Christians to receive a, a second experience of the Holy Spirit after conversion. And this, in effect, can make or cause some problems. So this is getting closer to the truth, but it misses the point in some, in some dangerous ways. So this idea, in effect, can make two tiers or two levels of Christians. You can have tier one Christians who don't have the fullness of the Spirit and tier two Christians who do. So if you're a, a tier one Christian, you need to receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which in a sense kind of upgrades your spiritual life. You'll hear this called sometimes second blessing theology or, or the teaching of a higher life. That You need to have this kind of upgrade to this higher spirituality, this higher life uh, that puts you on, on like the next plane. And you can see how discouraging that could be because often what comes along with this is it's said that you can know that you've received that baptism of the Spirit 
because of the physical evidence of speaking in tongues. So if you've spoken in tongues, you've been baptized in the Spirit. If you don't speak in tongues, you've, you've not received that Spirit baptism. And that can be deeply discouraging if you haven't had that experience. It can be extremely divisive within a body of believers. And there are, are, are biblical problems with this view. Now, it's true that in the book of Acts, there are occasions, several occasions, where someone is filled with the Spirit and then they speak in tongues. But not always. Not always. It's, it's actually often when the gospel is moving to new kind of geographical locations. And we know in Acts chapter 2 that at least tongues there was real human languages. And so as the gospel is going into foreign lands, the Lord is making sure the gospel spreads in that way. And, and it's an evidence that these believers, though non-Jewish, are part of God's people. But there are other times too where believers in Acts are filled with the Spirit, but they do other things like they boldly preach the gospel. Think about the prayer meeting in Acts chapter 4 where the believers have been persecuted and threatened and they pray, give us boldness. And the place where they're praying was shaken and the Spirit filled them and they continued to preach Jesus with all boldness. This filling of the Spirit is for the empowering of ministry of various kinds, not just one. It's not limited. Don't limit the Holy Spirit. And I know there might be questions on tongues and prophecy. Luke just mentions it. I don't want to get too far into that today. If you want to learn more about that, look at 1 Corinthians chapters 12, 13, and 14. Or come talk to me afterwards. I'd love to talk to you more about that. But these fillings, these empowerments, these endowments of the Spirit, they don't just happen one time to a believer to kind of upgrade their spiritual life. No, in the book of Acts, we see the same believers being filled with the Spirit over and over again. This is an ongoing work of the Spirit in the life of a Christian. So what's happening with these Ephesian disciples? They are already believers, which means they are already born again by the Spirit. They are already indwelt by the Spirit. They are in the process of sanctification through the Spirit. But in a sense, they were still stuck in the Old Testament. Remember that John the Baptist was the last Old Testament or Old Covenant prophet. Though he's in the New Testament, right? The New Covenant wasn't uh, established until Christ's death and resurrection. <laughs> and in the Old Testament, the work of the Spirit was different. He was still the one who saved believers, still the one who gave the new birth, who raised dead souls to life. But only a few times in the Old Testament do you see the Holy Spirit coming upon someone. And whenever this happened, there was power. The Spirit would come upon a prophet and he would prophesy, he would speak the revealed truth of God or the Spirit would come upon a judge and he was given power to have victory over God's enemies. Or the Spirit was given to a king and he was given wisdom to rule and lead God's people well. But this only happened to certain people at certain times. It wasn't the experience of all of God's people that they all received. 
But with the coming of the new covenant and in the age of the Messiah, the prophet said this time would be marked by a new work of the Spirit. And the focus is not on the Spirit himself. It's on Jesus, right? These people, it says they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Right? The Holy Spirit's role is to exalt and magnify the glory of Jesus. But there would be a new working of the Spirit. On the day of Pentecost, Peter quoted the prophet Joel in chapter 2, which said, I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. Not some but all. And he gets specific. He says, I will pour out my spirit on your sons and your daughters, on old men and young men, even on male and female servants. This working of the spirit would be made available to all God's people. And before Jesus ascended into heaven, he told his disciples, Behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Luke 24, 49. In Acts chapter 1, Jesus ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And then he said, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth. That's exactly what happened at Pentecost. The Holy Spirit came down. Christ ascended, the Spirit descended. And that one-time event of Pentecost exploded like an atomic bomb that sent shockwaves across continents and through the centuries. And in Acts chapter 19, Pentecost finally catches up with these Ephesian disciples. So what do we learn from this? We need the Holy Spirit. We need to be filled with the Holy Spirit and clothed with power from the Holy Spirit. If you're a Christian, you've already been regenerated by the Spirit, born again. You've already been indwelt by the Spirit. He will be in you and with you forever. And you're in the process of sanctification through the Spirit where he's making you more and more like Jesus. But we need to follow Paul's command in our call to worship this morning from Ephesians 5 and to be filled with the Spirit. And that's not as if we're empty and need to be filled, like we don't have the Spirit and we need to get him. No. Romans 8 9 says, if you don't have the spirit of Christ, you don't belong to Christ. Therefore, if you belong to him, you have his spirit. But just like we can be filled with joy or filled with anger or filled with sorrow and let those things influence and control us, we need to be filled with the spirit where he becomes the dominant controlling influence over us. You can call it whatever you want. The filling of the spirit the baptism of the Spirit, receiving power from on high. I don't care what you call it, but you need it. You need it. That's where we can go wrong with trying to have all these tight definitions here. It's the Holy Spirit. We need Him. And this week, I was exceptionally burdened for this message. It was unusually weighty to me. And I had to repent before the Lord of saying, 
there has been self-reliance and dependence on my own strength that's just crept in. I need the Spirit. I need to be filled with the Spirit. We need this. And I'm sure many of you have experienced this. Maybe you don't even know it, but you have. Can you remember a time where you were sharing the gospel and suddenly you were filled with a supernatural boldness? Your fear was just gone and you were just speaking with power. You're like, where's that coming from? Or you're speaking and the words that are coming out of your mouth. Like, I didn't think of that. That's not me. And that's the Holy Spirit giving you the words to speak. Or maybe you had sudden victory over a particular sin that had plagued you for years. And the Lord gave you just power and freedom over that sin. Or maybe your soul had been feeling just cold and dry. And then all of a sudden your affections for Christ were just set ablaze. And love for Christ was just coming out and you experienced his love. And that's, that's Ephesians 3, by the way, where Paul prays a prayer for revival for the Ephesians, these same believers. And I'm praying that you will be uh, filled with the Spirit to know the love of Christ. Or maybe you had an experience just like these believers and you did speak in tongues or you did prophesy. That might happen, by the way. 1 Corinthians 14.1 says, Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. So don't be afraid if God does something more than you expect. Being filled with the Spirit can look many different ways, but when it happens, it's unmistakable. And you don't need this as a second blessing. We need this empowering of the Spirit over and over again. We need a third and fourth and fifth and sixth blessing, on and on. If we are going to faithfully serve the Lord Christ in our generation, we cannot depend on our own strength, on our own wisdom. We need to be filled again and again with fresh endowments of the Spirit's power. As the Lord said through the prophet Zechariah, not by might, nor by power, but by my Spirit, says the Lord of hosts. And look at what the Holy Spirit continued to do in verses 8 through 12. Paul is preaching in the synagogue, gets kicked out like normal, and he starts preaching in the hall of Tyrannus, kind of a probably a rented lecture hall for two years, and all of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. That is, this whole region was saturated with the gospel. The gospel message went out in concentric circles. It was during this time that churches were planted, like the church in Colossae or the church in Laodicea. And remember what Packer said about revival, that when revival comes, God's word pierces. We also see, it says, Paul's handkerchiefs and aprons are being taken away to, to heal the sick and to free the demon-possessed. Now, what do we do with that? Well, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you, we have no plans of starting a River Oaks prayer cloth ministry. Um, I, I would not suggest you know, waiting till Pastor Chris uh, is done mowing the yard and getting his old sweaty t-shirt. That's what this was, by the way. Paul would make tents. These were his sweat racks. Okay? So don't get one of Chris's old sweaty t-shirts thinking it's going to heal you. 
Maybe, probably not. But notice that Luke calls these miracles extraordinary. So apparently there were miracles and they were extraordinary miracles. So even among the apostles, this is pretty unique. This is only happening through Paul, not his co-workers, Luke or Silas or Timothy. This only happened during this time period. It was a unique manifestation of God's power. It was extraordinarily out of the ordinary, unusual, not typical. But what's the point here? The point is that the gospel is being declared and the gospel is being demonstrated. People are being served body and soul, and the kingdom of darkness is being pushed back by the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The church was strengthened, souls were saved, God was glorified, revival had broken out in Ephesus. And it all started with the small number of disciples being filled with the Spirit. And that's an important point. Of course, we want to see revival and reformation and and awakening in our church and in our city and in our nation. But revival starts with me. Revival starts with you. Think of the word reviving or awakening. As, As believers are revived and awakened by the power of the Spirit. And I can't give you, you know, three steps to being filled with the Spirit. I can't give you six life hacks to help receive power from the Spirit. He is the sovereign Spirit who blows wherever He chooses. But if you are going to be filled with the Spirit, if you desire to be empowered by the Spirit, there is one thing to do. Fall on your face and pray. Pray. The Spirit comes to a praying people. Cultivate that kind of dependence on the Spirit in your life. Set the kindling in your life so the fire can fall. Jesus said, if you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? In Matthew, He says, how much will God give good gifts to those who ask Him? Luke is showing us the highest of those good gifts, the Holy Spirit himself. So we need to pray. This was the demonstration of the Spirit and of his power. Now we'll see the vindication of Christ's glory in verses 13 through 20. And remember what Packer said. He said, in seasons of revival, Satan keeps pace. Satan keeps pace. When Paul would later write to these believers in Ephesians 6, that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and spiritual forces of darkness in the heavenly places, they knew it because they had experienced it right here. There were seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva, and they were itinerant Jewish exorcists. So they were exorcists. They would 
cast out demons. We don't know if they were really doing this or if they were frauds and just, just faking it. We don't know. It doesn't tell us. They were Jewish. And actually, Jewish exorcists were well-known in the ancient world. They were um, thought of as some of the best exorcists. They would speak these Hebrew prayers, sounded very kind of exotic and mysterious. And they were itinerant. They would travel around from place to place. Now, realize that this was not done out of the goodness of their hearts. They were exorcists for hire. This was a business. And they saw the power of the Spirit through Paul. They saw what was happening in this revival in Ephesus. And they saw a lucrative business opportunity. They could have thought to themselves, and apparently this Jesus guy that Paul's always talking about, he can do some amazing stuff. Let's use his name. Let's get in on this and we'll, we'll boost our customer base. <laughs> they were trying to use Jesus for selfish gain. Satan was keeping pace. And that's because Satan's dominion in Ephesus was being threatened by the Spirit's mighty work through Paul and through the church. But instead of attacking this work of God, attacking the church, attacking this revival through head-on conflict, the tempter used different tactics, the tactics of imitation and counterfeit. They were using the name of Jesus, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. And there was a lot at stake here. Essentially, the name of Christ was at risk of being dragged through the mud. And the work of the Spirit was in danger of being discounted as cheap parlor tricks. And in God's providence, this wouldn't last. What these seven brothers didn't know was that Jesus will never allow himself to be used. God is not mocked. And Paul, he was being used by Jesus to serve others. These men were trying to use Jesus to serve themselves. And they were in for quite a shock. They said to a demonized man, again, I, ad I adjure you of the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. They thought this was going to go well. But the demon speaks back in mockery. He mocks these exorcists saying, Jesus I know and Paul I recognize. Who are you? In other words, the demon is saying, oh, we know Jesus. We hear the name of Jesus and we tremble. Who on earth do you think you are to use Jesus' name like that? Who are you? And the very same can be said to you if you try to use Jesus as a means of personal gain and personal profit. If you go to church and you do the Christian things to try to get something out of it, that is a dangerous game to play. 
Maybe you're trying to use Jesus to gain social status or for a hope of some kind of um, physical or financial gain. Maybe you're trying to make your family happy or, or, or for the relationships you get out of it. But please hear me. Jesus cannot and will not be used. He will not allow himself to be treated as a butler and answer your every beck and call to bring you the things that you want. No, Jesus doesn't bring us the things we want. Jesus is what we want. Jesus himself is the most valuable and precious treasure in the universe. So I will say with this demon, Jesus I know, Paul I know, who are you? Who do we think we are? And I want to pause for a moment and point out that the demons didn't only know Jesus' name, they knew Paul's name. Have you ever noticed that? They recognized Paul. Why did they recognize Paul? Not because Paul was so great, but because Paul was a threat to them. Paul's ministry was dangerous to the spiritual forces of darkness. The British evangelist Leonard Ravenhill used to say that it should be your ambition to be known in hell. That you would be such a threat to the enemy that the demons would know your name. Is that true of you? Is that true of your life? Do the demons know you? When you get on your knees to pray, are there alarm bells going off? And demons are saying, he's praying again. She's praying again. When they pray in faith, Things happen. Let's go stop them. When you open your mouth to speak, are the hosts of hell assembling to stop you because they know that the gospel you preach will ultimately destroy them? If you seek first the kingdom of heaven, your name will be known in hell. Well, after being sarcastically scolded by an evil spirit, this man that was demon-possessed, he beats these guys up. One on seven. And they run home wounded and naked. Now, let's be honest, that's pretty funny. <laughs> I, I love that that's in the Bible. That's hilarious. But this would not have been funny to these men at all. To be stripped naked in public was one of the worst dishonors a Jewish man could ever experience. <laughs> these men were exposed. Yes, they were exposed physically. But they were exposed as the frauds that they really were. And as these men were brought low and humiliated, the Lord Jesus was lifted up and highly exalted. Read verse 17. I love this so much. 
And this became known. So it's all that we just talked about. This became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. They weren't telling jokes about this throughout Ephesus, laughing at it. They were saying, have you heard about the name of Jesus? Don't mess with Jesus. He is powerful. Satan's plan had completely backfired. In trying to defame the glory of Jesus through these counterfeits, he ended up making the name of Jesus all the more famous. The glory of Christ had been vindicated in the sight of all. The city of Ephesus saw that Jesus was alive and reigning and sovereign and to be feared. He was lifted up as the true God and the only Savior and the conquering King. His glory was vindicated publicly and powerfully. And this resulted in the Ephesian revival being kicked into high gear. The fear of God fell on the city. Both Jews and Greeks, Christians and non-Christians, believers and unbelievers were in awe of the work of the Spirit and the power of Jesus. Many of the believers came and confessed their sins, divulging their, their practices of witchcraft and, and idolatry and then like the dark magical arts. And their repentance was expressed through what is probably the most God-glorifying bonfire of all history. <laughs> they brought their spell books, set them ablaze. And notice these were believers. We can sometimes tend to think of revival only in terms of the lost being saved. And we want that. We want more and more people to, to come to Christ. But this was a spiritual awakening in the hearts of believers. They realized that if the exorcists could be exposed, they could be exposed too. They realized that sin is not to be played with. The horror of sin became palpable to them. And they were doing exactly what Paul would later tell them to do in Ephesians 5.11, where he said, take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. Public confession of sin almost always accompanies times, of awake, accompanies times and seasons of awakening. Sin that had long remained hidden comes to the surface. So let me ask you, is there secret sin in your life? What I don't mean is sin from your past that you have confessed and repented of. Satan loves to bring those things back to, to, to accuse us. Now, I mean present sins. I mean right now, are there areas of compromise in your life that you're trying to hide? Is there disobedience in your life that you try to excuse and justify and explain away? Don't let your soul grow numb to sin. Don't harden your heart to the conviction of the Holy Spirit. 
If today you hear his voice, harden not your heart. Don't come right up to the brink of confession. Right up to the the edge of making a clean break with sin. And then stop short. Come into the light. Come into the light. Be honest with God. Be honest with those around you whom you've sinned against. And just soak in the glorious reality of 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The specific sins here were magic, witchcraft. This was a big part of the culture of the city of Ephesus. Ephesus had one of the seven wonders of the ancient world in it, the temple of Artemis. This will be a big part of what happens in the last half of this chapter that we'll see next week. But this was a big tourist location. People would come here to visit that pagan temple. And while they're there, they would pick up some souvenirs. And so they were known for their idols and for their, their spell books, just little scrolls that would have you know, spells and incantations written on them. And apparently the believers still had these. Maybe they were still practicing some of this in secret. Maybe they just kind of kept it in a closet, but didn't want to make a clean break. With it. They wanted to keep it there in case, you know, well, if this person gets sick and, you know, and Jesus doesn't heal them, maybe I need to go to those, those old ways. But either way, at this point, they realized we can't play with this anymore. We must be done with this. We must rid ourselves of this. And they brought them together and burned them. And don't think of this as like a, a book burning in a totalitarian regime. This is voluntary. This is people out of a heart of contrition and repentance saying, I want no more to do with these sins. And the total value of the books burned was 50,000 pieces of silver. Now, I did the math on this to see um, how much this would cost in current times. And uh, after first service... Bobby Jackson, Jackson, who's a math professor, told me I was using the mean and not the medium here, so, or medium. So, trust me on the preaching, not on the math part. But it's close. He told me I was close, okay. So, one piece of silver was a day's wage in the ancient world. You work for the day, here's a piece of silver. Well, today, on average, a full-time wage for an American, as of 2019, was around $19 an hour. So, um, a little bit over that, but I'm rounding down. I'm being conservative. And with eight hours a day, that's around $150 a day. Again, I'm I'm, uh, estimating conservatively. But, but 150 a day, but there's 50,000 of these pieces of silver. So 150 times 50,000 
is $7.5 million. I think Bobby said it was about $3 million. <laughs> it's in the millions, guys. It's a lot of money. The point here is that repentance is costly. Repentance is costly. They could have sold their spell books and made a profit. They could say, Paul, you don't have to make tents anymore. We're going to fund the church budget completely. We're good. Not so for these Ephesian believers. Sin had become horrific and reprehensible to them. In the words of Packer, when revival comes, man's sin is seen and change goes deep. They knew that their sins belonged in one place and one place only, the ash heap. So are you willing to repent? To truly repent? To repent all the way down? Are you willing for your sin to be seen for what it is and let the Spirit's change go deep? Repentance might not be costly to you financially, but it might cost you your reputation, your honor, relationships, your sense of pride. Are you willing for your sin to be brought into the light and to count the cost of following Christ in obedience and faith. And if you feel like, oh, I don't know, there's conflict in my soul. I'm willing, but I'm not willing. Look to Christ. Look to Christ. What you give up to follow him is nothing in comparison to what you gain. These believers gave up millions of dollars worth of goods, but they gained Christ. They received Christ as the treasure of their souls. They experienced the love and the power and the joy that comes from knowing Christ, Jesus. And all of this is summed up in this way, in verse 20. I love this verse so much. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. That is a fitting summary of this passage. It's a fitting summary of any revival. I love the way J.B. Phillips put it in his NT uh, paraphrase, his paraphrase of the New Testament. He said, the word of the Lord continued to grow irresistibly in power and in influence. There was an irresistible influence of the word of God over Ephesus. Don't you want to see that in our day? Don't you long for that to be a reality here and now? If so, what should we do? Again, we need to pray. We need to pray. Every revival in history has been preceded by earnest prayer. The Welsh revival we talked about earlier was preceded by months and months of earnest, agonizing, intercessory prayer. You might say, well, I don't see prayer in this passage. 
True enough. But listen to what Paul would later write to these same believers. In his letter to the Ephesians in chapter 1, Paul prayed that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that could be awakened, revived, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, even the same power that rose Christ Jesus from the dead. That is a prayer for revival and awakening. May we humble ourselves and cry out for the living God to come and to do it again. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than in all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for giving us this powerful word, for giving us the presence of your Holy Spirit, the gospel of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, for giving us every spiritual blessing in him in the heavenly places. We thank you. I pray that this word would prevail today, would prevail in hearts today, would continue to increase mightily. pray that you would bring people to faith right now, during this time. I pray that you would lead us in true, deep, meaningful, lasting repentance. Lead us into true holiness and true love. Give us deeper experiences of the love of Christ. Give us a sense of your presence. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. We ask this for for the glory of your great name, that the name of Jesus would be extolled. Amen.